Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Here's a quick story about double standards. It centers around Madame du Châtelet, a celebrity of the 18th century. The woman was brilliant. She translated the work of Isaac Newton into French, and while she did it, she made a comment on Newton's work that turned out to be a major contribution to physics. She was scandalous. She had a husband, but she also carried on an affair with Voltaire. And she had a curious mix of views when it came to her fellow humans. Not surprisingly, she believed that women were entitled to a lot better education than they were generally provided. She argued passionately for more equal treatment. When it came to her own servants, though, equality was not really on her radar. Madame du Châtelet considered her male valets so lonely that she didn't think twice about undressing in front of them because, according to historian Lynn Hunt, she didn't think it was a proven fact that valets were men. People were used to living in what we would call highly deferential societies, that there were people who were at the top, there were people at the bottom, there were people in the middle. It was better to know your place. It was better not to push too hard. And the aristocracy, Madame de Châtelet was one of them, the aristocracy was sort of naturally superior. But a revolution was coming. Actually, two revolutions. And in one of those revolutions, a man named Thomas Jefferson started a sentence this way. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Which meant, according to Hunt, who's a distinguished research professor at UCLA and author of the book Inventing Human Rights, that everyone had the capacity to learn and understand. And that raised a very uncomfortable question. Can all people really be educated? Actually, I think we now believe, yes, they can, and that that's incredibly important. But that was not the idea before the 18th century. The idea was that some people should be educated because they were capable, and other people didn't need to be educated because they were peasants, and why did they need to be educated? Hunt says human rights have not always been with us, and it was at the end of the 1700s that the very idea was being dreamed up. That moment in history, actually, has a lot to teach us today, which we're going to get to. But before people started to wonder whether those around them might be more equal than they had previously thought, the prevailing view was that, yes, lower classes did have emotions, but they were, Hunt says, too brutish. They were humans, but they were closer to animals. Their passions had got the better of their reason. They didn't have sensibility in the way that the superior upper classes did. So it was a deeply held view of the world that there was a kind of natural hierarchy. Uh, look, we're all loved Downton Abbey. Yeah. That, that was about that right. was about the early twentieth century where what was good about the aristocrats of Downton Abbey was that they were beginning to see in the early 20th century that servants were real people. But you even saw the struggle there. And you also saw in some ways that people were willing to talk about secret things in front of people yes. that they they knew were there, but they kind of thought were not there. They were sort of like wallpaper. You know, they were there and not there at the same time. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, that attitude persists in many ways for a very long time. What I found interesting about the 18th century was the beginning of a notion that was going to cast questions, was going to raise questions about that entire vision of the world, that there's a natural hierarchy. I, I think that has largely fallen apart now, but 
you know, there's still the issue in our society, our supposedly terribly modern society, about whether immigrants who don't know how to read and write, who can't speak English, uh, who seem very different from us, are actually truly equal. So how then do we get to that famous line in the Declaration of Independence that I quoted before, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal? Like, how did that happen? And how did we get to a point where someone would not only put that in writing, but also say it's self-evident? Like, obviously, you know, everybody knows that. Well, this is an incredibly interesting question. How could they say that these were self-evident truths. You know, I think it's important to say that there's not one single answer for that question. There are some long-term developments like the rise of science and new ideas about what human reason can accomplish. There are some medium-term developments about how people live their lives, which I myself have paid a lot of attention to and think are extremely interesting and important. But there are also some very important short-term things that happen. The colonists decide they want to break from Britain. They need to have a rationale. Using the sort of tradition of British liberties is not the greatest rationale for being independent from Britain. And so the short-term thing of what, how can we justify independence and what's going to be the basis of the government that we're going to have forces them to kind of crystallize this whole set of longer-term, medium-term developments into a declaration, something that will galvanize opinion. Hmm. You also make the argument that part of the rise of people thinking, well, I mean, maybe everybody does have human rights around this time, is something kind of unexpected, um, which is sort of the rise of the book, and not just any kind of book, but that people started reading and loving novels. You want to talk a little bit about like why that was important? You know, I the novel in general, but it, it's, it becomes especially important in the 18th century because that's the period when it really takes off in terms of publication and in terms of, of public interest. But in general, I think the novel is actually of an extremely fascinating form. It is still the case in the world that we live in that novelists can be subject to attack, to imprisonment, to being mm-hmm. banned. There's something about that form that drives authoritarian figures nuts. Hmm. And this is extremely interesting. In the 18th century, it's not so much about authoritarianism. It's that you have the the increasing publication of novels. They get people incredibly emotionally involved in the lives of characters. That is, with people they are never going to meet because they're fictional. Right. So they're, right. In principle, they're never <laughs> going to meet them. And so they're they're learning that even, you know, an 18-year-old girl, the servant girl Pamela in the novel of that name of 1740, has emotions just like the reader has. Mm-hmm. And the readers include lots of men. It's not a female genre, hmm. which it's a little bit more so a female genre now than, than it was in the 18th century. It was very much a male genre in the, in the 18th century. And people kind of identified mm-hmm. through the novel mm-hmm. with people they were never going to meet. And I think this is a very important process of learning that everybody is psychologically similar. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you have, I'm guessing, not just different genders reading um, novels like Pamela, but also different classes. So you're having aristocracy devour novels about people of lower classes and realizing, you know, like you said, 
they they love people too. They're, you know, crushed by things too. Their children get sick too and all those kinds of things. Yes, and and I think it's really hard to grasp how significant this kind of psychological back and forth could have been in the 18th century. For me, one of the true proofs of the importance of this form is that the abolitionist literature, which only begins to appear towards the very end of the 18th century, almost always takes a kind of novelistic form. Hmm. So freed slaves, when they write their incredibly kind of moving accounts, what do they do? They are essentially kind of novelizing Mm -hmm their life experiences. And people identify, therefore, with this ex-slave in a way that they could never have possibly imagined identifying with slaves in the past. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Lynn Hunt, a distinguished research professor at UCLA and author of the book Inventing Human Rights. So Thomas Jefferson, who I essentially quoted from uh, when I read the Declaration of Independence, is now thought of as someone who did not necessarily uh, treat people equally. And yet he wrote this sentence that clearly everybody should be treated equally. Um, How was it reconcilable to him that he's writing this stuff? And yet, obviously, he knew he could look around and he knew he wasn't treating everybody equally around him. Right. Although to give Jefferson his due, because I think he's truly one of the greatest political thinkers that the United States has ever had, to give him his due, he was profoundly agitated on the subject of slavery. Yes, he was a slaveholder. Yes, he maintained his slaves. Yes, he had relationships with at least one of his female slaves, Sally Hemings. We know all of that now, but he, at the same time, was agonized about this. He lived in a slaveholding society. He could not imagine overturning it. He did, however, totally support the abolition of the slave trade in 1806-1807, which the British inaugurated and the United States followed. And he did argue in favor of abolishing the slave trade on the grounds of, of basically of human rights, that it's really not right to enslave people. Right. So even the slaveholder that was Thomas Jefferson was troubled by this. And, and that's one of the things I think is so fascinating about the 18th century. People make these statements like the Declaration of Independence or the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen in France about uh, inalienable rights and the equality of all men. They don't really understand what the repercussions will be of making those clear declarations. But one of the huge consequences of these declarations is that it leads immediately to a huge amount of discussion, both in the United States and in France, about, well, who exactly does that mean? Mm-hmm. What about women? Mm-hmm. How can we have slavery? Uh, what about servants who never have the right to vote in most places until the end of the 19th century? What about people who don't have property who are excluded from voting in most countries also well into the 19th century? So they have no idea that just saying all men are created equal and they all have rights is going to lead to a huge amount of debate and discussion that no one saw coming. Hmm. They weren't having that debate before. They have the debate after these declarations. Do you think we've come a long way in terms of human rights, or do you think people in the future are going to look back at us and think, boy, you know, much as we look at Jefferson and think, boy, they sure had a long way to go. 
I think both things are true. I think mm-hmm. we have come a long way. Mm-hmm. I think that, again, once you advance rights, once a group gets rights who didn't have rights before, when you look back on it, you're like, how could this be? I mean, right. look, I'm a historian. I read a lot of history books. I, of course, was extremely interested in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. Even now, when I read about the way African Americans were treated as late as 20 or 30 years ago, mm-hmm. I, I just, it, I, I'm kind of speechless. Mm-hmm. I lived through that period. Mm-hmm. I was in college during the 1960s and the civil rights marches. We were all incredibly upset about it. In retrospect, that, that we were right to be upset, but it, you, the upsetness only occurs at certain times and in certain places. It doesn't happen just because it's unjust. I, I interviewed a, a former history professor at Princeton, um, Nancy Malkiel, several yes. months ago, and she's written a yes. big book about this, this, this wonderful book. Yes, yes, that she's about co-education, right. um, as particularly I think in the Ivy Leagues, but but in other uh, other places too. And um, the story she would tell from I think she started in the fall of '68 or '69 as a professor, like a very young professor at Princeton, and the story she would tell about what people would say to other people, what professors would say to female students was shocking. I mean, and this happened in her lifetime. She's not talking about like ancient history or something. I know. I know. <laughs> it's, you know, it's one of the one of the problems, of course, with those of us who are, are getting older is that we went through this period in the 60s of enormous changes and enormous discussion and debate and upheaval, etc. And we lived through certain kinds of changes, which you know, frankly, if we when we look back on them now, we're like, real. I mean, could this have really been true? I mean, especially when, when one thinks about, for example, the civil rights era, that you know people were being hosed down and dogs set upon them and beaten and even assassinated because they said African Americans should have the right to participate fully in our society. You're you kind of like, truly, could this be the case? Mm-hmm. But it was. Mm-hmm. It was, and it was, of course, also the situation. For women, it's this is this is why what what you said was so true. We look back and we say, "How could this be?" And yet we also have our struggles, which will come, and which people thirty years from now will say, "How could that be?" Hmm. We tend to view human rights as mostly sort of a steady upward trajectory. Do you think, in general, that's right? My view is that it is very much two steps forward, one step back. Hmm. I mean, I th- I think right now, to, in my view, we're living in a time in which in the United States, some fairly large portion of the population is has been upset for a very long time about the kinds of changes that have taken place. And this is their moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think they'll actually be able to roll back the, the rights that have been gained. Uh, at least I, I hope that's the case. But I think you can't have the expansion of rights and then just have people sit by and say, oh, that's just great. Because right. for some people, it's deeply threatening to change the social order of the South, for example, which is also in some ways the social order of the whole country in terms of race and African-Americans, has it has been a staggeringly difficult struggle. And, and there have been gains. And when there are gains, there are people who are very unhappy about that. Hmm. Lynn Hunt is a distinguished research professor at UCLA. She's also the author of Inventing Human Rights, A History. Lynn, thank you so much for this great conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it.
I mentioned an interview I did with Nancy Malkiel about colleges that went co-ed in the 60s and 70s, a very bumpy transition, and it included some stories that will knock your socks off. We have got that interview, if you want to hear it, at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Sometimes the most significant discoveries from an experiment are things you could have never anticipated. And sometimes, like in the case of Vincent Felitti, even the experiment itself kind of creeps up on you. Felitti is a physician in San Diego. He's a professor at the University of California, San Diego, and founder of the Department of Preventative Medicine at Kaiser Permanente. About 25 years ago, he was working in a medical program helping people combat obesity. But the program had lots of dropouts. And the dropouts were not people who couldn't lose weight. They were people who were doing great. They were making real progress towards their goals. They were the people who you would have thought would have been excited and would have stayed in the program. But that did not happen. And when these very successful people dropped out, they gained the weight back very, very fast. Felitti couldn't figure out what was going on, so he started asking people questions about their pasts. Were they skinny kids? Were they overweight kids? Did their weight change suddenly at some point? And he realized that a lot of people had not become heavy slowly over time. They had gained weight all at once. Now, a quick warning here. There will be a little talk threaded through this story about sexual abuse. And I remember vividly one woman uh, we had worked up to uh, in the 20s in her life, and she told me that at 23 she was raped and in the year subsequent gained 105 pounds, whereupon she looked down at the carpet and muttered to herself, overweight is overlooked, and that's the way I need to be. Felitti was struck. And soon he began asking lots more participants in the program if they had experienced rape or abuse. And was floored by the fact that it seemed every other patient in the program that I was asking was acknowledging a history of childhood sexual abuse. And initially I had great difficulty accepting that, you know, I mean, it can't be. You know, I must be doing something wrong. I mean, people would know if this were true. And uh, 186 patients later, it turned out not to be every other patient, but 55%. And the more patients that he and his colleagues asked about this, the more their findings. And remember, this was an experiment that they didn't even know they were doing. The more their findings were consistent. Felitti spoke about their work at an obesity conference in 1990, and it didn't go well. Some guy gets up and says, you really need to understand, Dr. Felitti, that People who are more familiar with these matters, like obviously they, recognize that these statements by patients are basically fabrications to provide a cover explanation for failed lives. And I remember standing in front of that very large audience thinking to myself, oh yeah, right, people falsely claim incest histories for social aggrandizement. And I remember thinking, you know, do I tell this wretch what I think of him and probably start a riot here or, or let it go? I, I decided to let it go. But he still cared about the research and he wanted to build on it. He also made a contact at that meeting that would change his life. The doctor who sat next to him at dinner was from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, part of the federal government. He told Felitti that his findings could be critically important for the country if... They were proven true. 
There were two basic questions. One, how common are these in a general population? And two, how do they play out over time? So Felitti and his colleagues started surveying patients to ask about a set of adverse childhood experiences, abuse, physical, sexual, or emotional, major neglect, either emotional or physical, and a few other indicators of possible dysfunction, growing up without both biological parents, growing up in a household with an alcoholic, a drug user, someone who's being abused, someone who's chronically depressed or otherwise mentally ill, and growing up with a parent who's in prison. Then this study that had accidentally come into being because of a few stories that shocked a few doctors started yielding a rather amazing large-scale finding. On average, people who scored one or more adverse childhood experiences grew up to become a lot sicker than those who hadn't. Some of that sickness manifested in a way that you might expect. Depression, anxiety, suicidal tendencies, higher drug and alcohol abuse. But it went way beyond that. Here are some of the other problems they saw more of. Heart disease, lung disease, liver disease, diabetes, fractures, cancer, a number of autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, scleroderma, etc. And a major effect on premature death. We found that a person who had experienced any of those six categories Uh, in their childhood or adolescence had a uh, shortening of life expectancy of 19.7 years, basically 20-year life shortening. It was just about 20 years ago now that Felitti began publishing those results, and lots of findings on ACE scores, ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, have appeared since then. Some lawmakers have taken note. They've passed legislation to gather this sort of information and make it available to public services trying to help kids. But Felitti says that the medical community just has not known what to do with ACE scores. They might be too hot to touch, kind of too difficult to tackle, but they're there. And Felitti thinks that both doctors and the public have to confront them. I think the most important thing that could happen with it would be to make a transformative change in primary care medical practice so that issues of causality were routinely sought. I wonder, though, if people are scared, both on the front of asking people about things that they consider very private and personal, but also on the front of, I mean, you've taken in some ways sort of these very sensitive topics and turn them into numbers. I wonder if people think, oh, gosh, you know, to reduce abuse to a number that we don't want to, like, we don't want to go near that. I think the avoidance of this is out of self-concern. I don't know how to talk with people about stuff like that, etc., that kind of thing. So, Probably the most important thing would be to get across the idea by illustration, by video illustration, of what this looks like in the exam room. And what the examiners worked out was this approach. I see on the questionnaire that. Can you tell me how that's affected you later in your life? And they listened. I see on the questionnaire that you were the one who discovered your father's body when he hanged himself. Can you tell me how that's affected you later in your life? I see on the questionnaire that you were sexually molested as a kid. 
Can you tell me how that's affected you later in your life? And we listened, period, period. And then this mathematician from UCSD comes by and shows in a 130,000-person sample that that somehow triggers a 35% reduction in doctor office visits and an 11% reduction in ER visits the next year compared to the year before for that same group. So hearing this, many people say to me, you know, how do you do that? You, you sent everyone to therapy, right? No, we sent almost no one to therapy. Well, how do you do that? And then I came to see that the piece that we had overlooked, recognizing, was implicitly accepting. That it was asking, not face-to-face -face initially, that's too difficult. And then following that up in the exam room, I see on the questionnaire that, can you tell me how, and listening and implicitly accepting. Yeah, people were, people were opening up to, yeah. to their doctors. Yeah. Um, so when you think about trying to help people deal with some of these experiences, there must be some patients who have adverse childhood experiences, but maybe somehow avoid getting as sick as other people with many of the same experiences. Have you at all been able to isolate or think about what sort of, is there a resilience factor somewhere that helps some people and doesn't help others? Absolutely. The essence of resilience centers on the deeply held recollection and belief that at least once there was someone in one's life who really cared about you, to whom you really mattered. And that could be a teacher. It could be. A, could it be a teacher? Could it be a coach? Teacher, or, a policeman, yeah. a coach. Mm. Absolutely. Resilience is a very popular subject because it is a good step towards avoidance. Well, I mean, the kid's only two. He's not going to remember this. Kids are resilient. He's going to, you know, he's going to get over this. One of the major researchers in resilience in the United States is a woman named Emmy Werner, W-E-R-N-E-R. -E I believe it's the bottom of page 67 of her book. She makes the <laughs> memorable statement that amongst the most resilient people they had studied, they were unexpectedly surprised to discover the high rate of biomedical disease in that group. These are resilient people, but they've still got serious diseases. Unexpectedly high huh. biomedical disease. When we look at resilience, we look at income, social status, academic success, etc. We do not look at biomedical disease as a marker of resilience or lack thereof. I see. So they might have become a successful lawyer, but that didn't mean that they were able to fend off potentially medical implications of these childhood experiences they had. A absolutely. And mm -hmm. the best example of that that I can think of is an autobiography written by a woman named Mary Elizabeth Bullock. She was extensively molested by her father as a little girl. In addition, he brought her into saloons and sold her to strangers for sex at nighttime. Mm. Somehow she does not commit suicide. She does not become a mass murderer. 
she becomes a United States federal judge. Wow. I mean, that's a big deal. Isn't it wonderful how this woman is so resilient? Hmm. The rest of the story, the part that's never looked at, is she has had five different kinds of cancer. Not five relapses, five different kinds of cancer. In 50 years, I have never met a patient with five different kinds of hmm. cancer before her. In addition, she has lupus. In addition, she has multiple sclerosis. So the question ultimately comes up, how does this happen? Right. I mean, how the hell do you go from what happens to a little kid, you know, to having cancer 50 years later? Well, our initial thought was, well, you know, I mean, you smoke three packs a day to feel better, of course. And that's true, except that Judge Bullock never smoked. Mm -hmm. The question comes, well, how does one deal with this? The magnitude of the problem is such that it will never meaningfully be dealt with on a person-by-person -person basis after the fact. If anything is going to be done meaningfully, hmm. it's going to have to be done by primary prevention, by figuring out how to prevent this in the first place. No one knows how to do that yet, but it's the right question to focus on. And my best guess currently would be that would involve figuring out how to enable tens of millions of people in this country to become more capable parents, mm. to become more supportive parents. Dr. Vincent Felitti is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego. He's also the founder of the Department of Preventive Medicine for Kaiser Permanente. Thank you so much for your time. You're more than welcome. got more on our website about research into adverse childhood experiences and what we know about their effect on health. Plus, we've got info on how the studies are being put to use. That's at innovationhub.org. Vincent Felitti, by the way, thinks that one of the best ways to reach large numbers of parents might be to develop a kind of soap opera that would highlight different sorts of situations that you confront when you're raising a kid and then showcase what supportive parenting looks like. In 1942, the Attorney General of the U.S., a guy named Francis Biddle, met with a newspaper publisher. It was a tense meeting. And Biddle's concern was that the publisher, who presided over a legendary black newspaper out of Chicago called The Defender, was not supportive enough of the war effort. So Francis Biddle said that he had the power to, to shutter the black press and he was willing to use it. Eitan Michaeli, who later worked at The Defender and has written a history of the paper's 100-plus years, says Biddle knew that the publisher, John Sengstack, had influence, and he didn't like how it was being used. But Sengstack had his own set of questions about involvement in a war that, in his view, was being sold with a shaky moral argument. 
it was, of course, a question for African-Americans to what degree they were going to support the war effort, particularly because the putative uh, mission of the war was to liberate the world for freedom and democracy. Well, if there wasn't freedom and democracy in the United States, then it was, uh, as I said, a question for African-Americans to what degree they were going to participate. So when Biddle, the attorney general, told Sangstack that not falling into line when it came to the war effort could mean the closure of his paper, Sangstack did something that it's kind of hard to imagine doing. John Sangstack frankly called his bluff, said, you do have that power. Why don't you go ahead and do it? And Biddle was flabbergasted for a moment. And then Mr. Sangstack uh, told him, look, if you don't want to shutter the black press, here's another option. Why don't you open up access to the black press to the federal government? Whenever we try to get an interview with the Secretary of the Navy, we're refused. Whenever we try to get information from anywhere in the military, we're refused. Whenever we try to get information from the White House, we're refused. What do you expect us to print when we don't have your side of the story? If you want your side of the story in the newspaper, you have to give us your side of the story. And Francis Biddle, being a relatively open-minded person for his era, saw the logic and was uh, persuaded by Mr. Sengstack and actually became an ally uh, with Mr. Sengstack to get more access to the black press um, to the Roosevelt administration. That power, the power to change policy, to open up the White House press corps to black reporters, that came from a paper that had already exerted tremendous power. Michaeli argues in his book, The Defender, how the legendary black newspaper changed America, that by the 1940s, the paper had altered the demographics of America itself. Robert Abbott, who founded the paper, and by the way, was John Sengstack's uncle, had noticed something very important in the early years of the 20th century. There was a way to undermine the Jim Crow system of segregation in the South. Bring black workers up north. Seven million people moved out of the South during the Great Migration, which shaped culture, the economy, politics. Convincing people to move, though, meant that the Defender had to be distributed in the South. And that wasn't easy, because newspapers in the South were restricted in terms of what they could print. And the Defender wasn't. In 1911, there was a case in which uh, there was an attempted lynching where a man who had murdered um, the owner of a plantation uh, where he worked, the white-owned newspapers said that the whole incident was because of a financial situation or because of some sort of misunderstanding. Well, the defender was able to print that the whole incident took place because the plantation owner had raped the man's wife. Hmm. A, you know, rape, frankly, did not occur in the white-owned uh, newspapers. There was always a misunderstanding. There was always some sort of financial um, situation. There was always something kind of murky and mysterious about why these kinds of incidents took place. And it was never the case that a white person had uh, raped an African-American woman. So when the Defender printed details like that, it, of course, uh, rang true to its readers and, frankly, uh, was able to uh, make sense of all the, the atrocities that took place. So the Defender, um, by printing these kinds of stories, was able to establish itself as a voice of integrity, as a voice of veracity, and a voice that could be trusted. When then the editorial side of the newspaper began to tell people, you should come to the North, people listened because they trusted what was there on the news page. Was there ever a time when people in the South or in the North said, listen... 
<laughs> I mean, this paper is getting too honest, frankly, about what's happening. We've got to shut it down. Oh, there were multiple efforts to shutter the Defender throughout the South. Um, the incident that I mentioned in 1911, in that case, the Southern uh, authorities from from the town that was being reported on, it was the town of Washington, Georgia, uh, were so upset that the Defender um, printed the truth about what had happened that they said that uh, if what the Defender has printed, and this is the Atlanta, they reported in the Atlanta Constitution and the Atlanta, Georgia, and, and News, mm. Um, and they reported that the people of these of the town of Washington, Georgia, were so upset by by what they had read in the Defender, and they said that if if what the Defender wrote was true, this was uh, a strike against the honor and integrity of the entire South, the entire White South. Hmm. So as a result, they sent Pinkerton detectives up to Chicago to arrest Robert Abbott. But by this time, the, sh- the community in Chicago, the African-American community in Chicago, was 40,000 people strong. They had their own National Guard unit, their own African-American police officers, their own elected officials. Mm. And frankly, there was no way that two Pinkerton detectives <laughs> equipped only with a warrant from the state of Georgia mm. were going to uh, overcome mm. that kind of infrastructure. And Robert Abbott was able to call on a prominent attorney and a prominent physician and other prominent citizens of, of Chicago to come and assist him and, and, and chase the Pinkerton uh, detectives away. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking to Eitan Michaeli, author of The Defender, How the Legendary Black Newspaper Changed America. I mentioned uh, getting black reporters into the White House press corps. It was not long before The Defender was taking on very big national issues like integrating the military. And that wasn't just important uh, for the military, but it was kind of this cultural marker for all sorts of integration that was uh, yet to come. Of course, this was uh, we have to we have to go back in time a little bit to the way people thought back then. And so the ability to fight in war was an issue of manliness. It was an issue of maturity and the ability to fight for one's country was was an honor. But it was also a mark of uh, your citizenship. So African-Americans, since the Revolutionary War, it has to be said, had fought for the right to fight alongside their white compatriots. There were segregated African-American units, usually led by white officers. And in 1948, with Harry Truman running for his first term as the elected president of the United States, uh, Harry Truman came to John Sengstack and asked for his endorsement. And Mr. Sengstack was in a very strong position to say, well, if you want the support of the black press, and in particular the Chicago Defender, you're going to have to do something dramatic to win over African-American voters. And that dramatic action was determined to be, or Mr. Sengstack determined that to be, an executive order to integrate the U.S. armed forces, Mm. which President Truman did issue just a few weeks before the election. And he also created a commission to effect the integration of the armed forces and made Mr. Sengstack a member of that commission. Uh, did Truman, was that like uh, a real push and he didn't want to do it? Or was he, was he you know, uh, kind of on board and like, OK, I understand. I'll do it. No problem. Oh, it was it was a hard fought negotiation. Okay. But uh, uh, frankly, uh, uh, Mr. Sengstack had um, uh, 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 had leverage there because the African-American vote was essential. If you look at the electoral results or the election results from 1948, the African-American community in Illinois and Ohio was absolutely decisive hmm. in, in the 
in the results. If you look at, if you know the famous um, Dewey defeats Truman headline. I do. And uh, there's a great picture of Truman holding up that paper with like a huge smile on his face because obviously they got it wrong. Well, that's right. And now that was a copy of the Chicago Tribune. And while unfortunate, the editor of the Tribune that that had to make a decision that evening as, mm. as his deadline was approaching, he looked at the the exit polls. He looked at the initial uh, results of, of uh, the, the polls that were coming in. And he said, well, unless the African-American community comes out in unprecedented numbers for Harry Truman, which seemed unlikely com- as compared with Franklin Roosevelt, there's no way that that uh, the Truman can win Illinois. And if he loses Illinois, he won't win the country. Hmm. So the, the Tribune editor made what what I would describe as an educated guess um, the one piece of information that he did not have was that John Sangstack and Congressman Bill Dawson, the the uh, then one of two African-American congressmen in the United States, had spent weeks before the election barnstorming around the country to try to uh, 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 generate enthusiasm among African-American voters. So that unprecedented turnout for Truman from uh, the African-American community was very much the result mm. of, of John Sengstack's direct efforts, which the editor of the Tribune um, uh, was not privy to. Mm. So I don't want to talk about the defender without mentioning uh, Barack Obama. Uh, you okay. write about Obama walking into the offices of this newspaper. He's mm. running for the House of Representatives. His suit is worn. People are kind of like, yes. what's up with this guy? Um, he does not win the the uh, race for the House of Representatives. In fact, he's crushed. Um how did this newspaper influence, change, intersect sort of the, the career of, uh, of, of Barack Obama? So Barack Obama at that, in that race was a state senator, and he was a state senator who was not from Chicago, uh, did not have a, a history here or a pedigree here. So there was a lot of resentment toward Barack Obama, even um, though he was an elected official. And when he ran for Congress, and this is now in 2000, he ran against Bobby Rush, who was a former Black Panther, yeah. was the one who discovered the bloody and bullet-riddled apartment where Fred Hampton uh, had been killed by Chicago police. So Bobby Rush was part of the firmament of Chicago, and it was um, an audacious move, to say the least, uh, for Barack Obama to go after him at that time. That said, the defender looked at Barack Obama, looked at his talents, looked at his accomplishments such as they were at that point, and said, this is a talented individual. Mm-hmm. This is a decent person with integrity. And even though he has failed in this race and has done some things that we're not so sure about, we should give him a chance. So through its editorial pages, the defender was able to give Barack Obama a stamp of approval and legitimacy that allowed him to build his base in the African-American community in Chicago and such that uh, for Barack Obama, this was the infrastructure that he needed to get to the presidency. I do not think that Barack Obama could have become president from any other state. Hmm. So here you've written, I'm going to say, a 600-page book <laughs> about yes. a uh, about a, a black newspaper that was really important in sort of shifting the demography of the country, as you said, making these political deals that changed history. Um, but we are also at this moment where every kind of newspaper uh, is very often down on their luck. We've seen uh, pretty big newspapers, regional newspapers shut down um, in recent years. Um, what is happening to 
Black-owned newspapers to these sort of voices of the community? Are they moving somewhere else? Are they still read? What's happening? Well, African-American newspapers have always had to be sustainable. They frankly never have received the support of white advertisers or uh, white business owners in, in other ways. And so they've had to depend in large proportion on their readership and on their communities to support the newspapers. Mm. Um, and they continue today. African-American newspapers, um, the Defender is still there publishing um, not daily as it was when I worked there in the 1990s, but it's still publishing weekly. And it still punches well above its weight, I would say, as a publication that is not just representative of one community within Chicago, um, but is representative really of an entire cause and history within the United States, within America. Hmm. And so the Defender and the black press will continue um, to persist and exist in that way as a voice of conscience, as a voice of counter-propaganda to what's going on in the mainstream press and, and in other media. And you, you think the Defender and other papers will continue on and not necessarily fold the way that sort of, you know, general newspapers, regional newspapers have? Well, I know that the black press will continue as a news source mm. and that African-American individuals coming together to form a coherent voice, that will definitely continue. Mm. You find that all over the, the Twitterverse for sure um, and on Facebook and other social media as well. Mm. So finally, what was it like for you to work at this paper, not as an African-American? Here you are right. working at this really important historical paper that you clearly fell in love with, wrote a big book about, spent years researching. Did it feel odd? Explain to me what that was like for you. Well, so I'm a white Jewish guy from upstate New York. I got a degree in English lit from the University of Chicago. And the way that I got to the Defender was not through any particular interest in African-American history or civil rights or anything like that, but simply because I was looking for a writing job. And a friend of mine who was also a white Jewish University of Chicago grad uh, offered to uh, recommend me to replace him. It was only when I got to the newspaper and began to scan the lobby and saw the historic copies of the newspaper in a glass case, saw Robert Abbott's portrait gazing down on me, saw his words inscribed in the floor of the lobby, that's when I really began to understand that I was somewhere special. Hmm. And when I went to go talk to the city editor, I very awkwardly for a job interview asked her if, if it was okay uh, that I was a white guy that wanted to work there. <laughs> and she laughed and said that white folks have always worked at the Defender. And it was absolutely true. I wasn't the first white person to work at the Defender. I wasn't even the 101st white person to work at the Defender. The cause of an integrated America, the cause of racial justice, has never been simply an African-American struggle. It is a struggle for white people as well as for African-Americans. And we have to uh, join that fight for our own um, sanity and for our own sense of justice. I think that's essential. And that's where the Defender has always stood. And that's why it has always made room for white employees to be a part of the newspaper. Eitan McKaylee is the author of The Defender, How the Legendary Black Newspaper Changed America. He was also an editor there. Eitan, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me.
Photojournalist Bobby Abbott Sengstack was the last Sengstack to serve as editor of the Chicago Defender, and he died earlier this year. You can check out some of his photographs online at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.